Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 188 of All Booked Up, the Buffalo and Erie County Public Library's podcast about books, movies, and all things pop culture. I am your host, Michelle Snyder, and Jacob is away on vacation today. But we are super lucky today to have Amanda Oliver here with us, a Buffalo, New York native who is a writer and former librarian. Her writing has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Electric Literature, Vox, Medium, and more. And she has been interviewed about libraries and being a librarian for NPR, CBC Radio, the Associated Press, American Libraries Magazine, and others. She holds um, a BA and an MLS degree from SUNY Buffalo and an MFA in nonfiction from the University of California at Riverside. And I think the thing that I am most jealous to say is that she currently calls the Mojave Desert near Joshua Tree home. Amanda, welcome to the show. Hi, Michelle. Thanks so much for having me. This is really, really exciting for me. So I'm going to try to like focus my brain, but I'm probably going to get really excited because I like talking to librarians in general. This is my favorite part to get to talk to you as a librarian about this book. So on March 22nd of this year, your first book was published called Overdue, Reckoning with the Public Library. How does that feel to just be, you didn't have any books before that, correct? No, I had self-published one maybe 10 years ago that I sold to like 100 friends, but uh, no, this is the, this is the first book. That's really amazing. The description of the book is, who are libraries for, how have they evolved, and why do they fill so many roles in our society today? Based on firsthand experiences from six years of professional work as a librarian in high-poverty neighborhoods of Washington, D.C., as well as interviews and research, Overdue begins with Oliver's first day at an unusual branch, Northwest One. Using her experience at this branch allows Oliver to highlight the national problems that have existed in libraries since they were founded, racism, segregation, and class inequalities. These age-old problems have evolved into police violence, the opioid epidemic, rampant houselessness, and lack of mental health care nationwide, all of which comes to a head in public library spaces. Can public libraries continue to play the many roles they are tasked with? Can American society sustain one of its most noble institutions? There's a, there's a lot in that. And in my brain I go, and there's more. Yeah. That isn't in that description. That's, you know, the marketing and publicity piece of it. That's why everyone has to, to read the book. So like I said, I'm very eager to talk to you, but I do want to start, since you are from Buffalo, um, whereabouts did that take place? Where did you grow up? Where did you hang? Yeah, I grew up in Williamsville, New York, and I went to school there. And then as soon as I graduated, I moved to downtown Buffalo. Okay. Um, so I, if you know Molly's Pub or PJ Bottoms. I sadly, from, I sadly do know both of those yes, spots. <laughs> Main Street. I don't think they're there anymore. But there were two houses on Main Street uh, right next to Molly's Pub, and I lived in the brown one <laughs> for the first few years. And then I lived in the Elmwood Village, and I did my, my undergrad and my master's both at SUNY Buffalo. And then once I graduated with my MLS degree, I was looking for a job and I sort of applied to library systems all over the country and DC was the only one to get back to me. So I left Buffalo to start my first job as a librarian. Well, I'm sad because we're always hiring, so. Yeah, I don't know what, or maybe, no, you know what, I was ready to leave Buffalo, so I don't even think I looked at that point. Okay. At the, and New York has very different um, exams and rules in order to become a certified librarian in Buffalo, and I was uh, in the process of that when DC got back to me. What drew you to being a librarian, to going into school for that? Yeah, so um, where I grew up in Williamsville, the first five years of my life, I lived across the street from uh, a public library branch. And my family and I sort of grew up at the poverty line. And it was kind of this one place that I could go where I didn't feel different. You know, you're maybe okay, familiar yeah. with Williamsville and that it's a, a wealthier <laughs> area. And my parents had like worked very, very hard to to get us a house there that so that we could be in a good school system. And um, so, yeah, the library was just this kind of 
brilliant, warm, welcoming place. And I, I loved that experience. And then I was one of those kids who, like, in middle school and in high school during my lunch break went and hung out at the library. So they were always just kind of beloved places for me. I had always loved reading. And then I did my English undergrad at UB, and I graduated and I was like, what the heck am I going to do with an English uh, with an English degree? And uh, I took a year off. I, I worked at Cooney's, the sushi restaurant, for a year. That was a good one. Yep. And then I um, was trying to figure out what to do next. And I was working at a daycare. And I knew I loved kids. And I knew I loved books. And I combined those into uh, I went with for the children's librarian, um, school librarian track. I think it's really funny because most librarians that I talk to no one is like, oh, I always knew this is what I wanted to do. It's like, well, I liked this and I liked this and I didn't know what I was doing. I took a long roundabout way of getting there. I like moved to LA after I graduated and was like, I'm gonna live here and do like yeah. movie stuff. And then I was like, I'm not, this isn't really working. And then I came home for a bit and then I was like, oh, I'm gonna go to Japan and teach. Yep. And then I did that and I was like, and when I come home, I'll become a teacher. But like teaching in Japan, I was like, I don't like it. Yes. I don't want to be a teacher. So I came home and literally my best friend one day when I was like, what am I doing with my life? She was like, I don't know, you like books. Why don't you be a librarian? So and I was like, okay. Yes, that's a, that's a the fuller, shorter story is I was sitting at a cafe in Buffalo talking to one of my best friends about I don't know what to do next and a woman overheard. And she goes, well, have you ever thought about being a librarian and I was like well I haven't um that's amazing right it was just a side conversation but yes I I hadn't thought of that till just now but uh, every librarian I know it's the same deal it was like a roundabout I don't know anyone who's like I knew since I was a child (laughs) that I wanted to be a librarian (laughs) but you know it works out are you do you think you'd thank that lady now for the journey it took you on or would you be like some advice that was stressful I would thank her for yeah the the sort of 10-year path uh that has happened between that conversation (laughs) and this book coming out I am thankful for for all of it okay so I wanted to read that Esquire magazine which recently named overdue one of its 15 best nonfiction books of 2022 praised it for illuminating how libraries have long been vectors for some of our biggest social ills, from segregation to racism to inequality. Now, as unhoused patrons take refuge in libraries and librarians are trained to administer Narcan, our overlapping mental health care and opioid crises come to a head in these spaces. At once, a love letter and a call to action overdue dispels mythology and demands a better future. Firstly, did writing this energize or exhaust you? I'm going to give you the honest answer okay. that it that it exhausted me, but it was also uh, very cathartic and therapeutic to mm-hmm. get to go back through a lot of what happened and reconsider my pathway to the work, my experience in the work. And then, of course, I wrote it in the three years now since I stopped being a librarian. Mm -hmm. And once I was out of the day-to-day physical space of libraries um, and better able to take care of my mental health, uh, there was a bit more clarity around everything that had happened. Um, And I... I've talked about this a few different places, but I had a lot of anger yeah. uh, when I worked as a librarian and then in the immediate aftermath. And I think writing it has um, eliminated most of that that anger. I mean, that's that's great. I feel like so many people, it's easier to come to terms with things or you know find understanding is to take a space and a step away, which is what most people can't do. Yes. So then you're just kind of stuck in it. And that's part of the problem. And if you've read the book, I talk a lot about empathy fatigue. And and part of that is just the repeated exposure, sometimes daily, to um, trauma and uh, traumatic incidents. So Yeah. I want, I have so many more questions for you, but would you mind sharing an excerpt from the book? Yeah, I'd love to. Okay. So this is from Chapter 10 of the book, Libraries Will Not Save Us. Uh, So when there are hurricanes, tornadoes, mass shootings, election fraud, and other incidents that cause collective distress, librarians have adjusted their hours, 
services, resources, and outreach to meet the needs of their community members. Librarians are clearly key contributors to community resiliency. It is easy to see how everyone from newspaper columnists to everyday citizens believes in the possibility of libraries saving us, even as what we need saving from constantly changes and grows. And yet, despite all this prophesying and placement of hope in public libraries, despite all the ever-evolving work librarians complete, their significance, including conversations surrounding their funding, remains in question and under debate. There is a similarly long list of recent articles to the ones I opened this chapter with that question the future of public libraries and if they have one at all. Will libraries as public spaces remain relevant given our increasing reliance on digital data? If so, can librarians sustain the evolving changes of what it means to be a librarian? Will libraries withstand the move to privatize so many of our public institutions? Do people even still go to libraries? The answer to all of these questions is yes. Has been yes, will continue to be yes. Every few months, a friend sends me some version of a notion they've seen in a tweet or other social media post. If public libraries were invented today, our society and government would never let them happen. My response is this. I don't think we would be here, period, without public libraries. Without centuries of information that has been protected, preserved, disseminated, cataloged, or otherwise organized and shared to help guide us through every pivotal moment in modern history. And not just pivotal moments, but mundane ones, joyful ones, sorrowful ones. There is a reason that libraries have existed in some form as far back as the seventh century BC, and that philosophers, historians, monarchs, peasants, and any other category of human beings we have created have turned to them for guidance, entertainment, and a sense of place in the world. They provide answers, they preserve history, they mark our humanness and our present, our past, our future. I mean, I think that's affecting to anyone who reads it, but as a librarian, it hits really hard. It's, it's really beautiful, but you know, it made me think because I had, I had read that excerpt and I saw you have the part about Neil Gaiman published that article of why our futures depend on libraries and reading and daydreaming. And I think initially when I see these articles, I get kind of excited, like, yay, libraries. But at the same time, the whole, like, libraries will save us all is a a two-edged sword. So why do you think that people really romanticize libraries? I think, especially right now, we sort of need hope and places and people that embody hope and and care and equality more than ever. And I'm always really cautious that those are the beautiful assertions that we make about libraries. They're not incorrect, but I think they're incomplete. Mm-hmm. It's an incomplete understanding of what all is happening. And I've been thrilled in the last sort of probably five years, especially because of social media and Twitter, that our dialogue around libraries has shifted, that more and more people understand that they're not just places that house books. We've dropped some of the stereotypes about uh, what librarians look like and act like and what they do. Um, There's a little bit of an evolving understanding more of um, some of the services that are being offered and and who is patronizing libraries more than anyone else, which is often including unhoused people and Um, people struggling with addiction and their mental health and this other um, large group of people. And so there's a lot of hope in that, right, that we have an institution, that we have a place for um, folks like that to go to receive care. And uh, but I don't know that then the rest of the conversation goes beyond that. And are we thinking about then how libraries are designed and funded and who they're for. I think there's sort of a stopping point right now collectively at the, we understand libraries are doing these really beautiful, wonderful things, but there is not uh, the the next the piece deep of dive. that. Yeah, yeah, the deep dive that needs to happen. And that my greatest hope with the book is that um, 
I'm able to sort of take people down that deep dive um, sort of from a librarian's perspective of, you know, I don't think we're not afraid to ask questions and we're definitely not afraid to search for answers. And I think um, there are definitely topics and things that are really difficult to go into. But I think when we stop short of asking what the sort of next logical question is, like how do we get to a place where libraries are fulfilling so many of those roles, um, that that's the perplexing part for me. Um, and certainly they embody hope, but I am interested in having a more uh, robust conversation beyond that um, basic understanding. But I am thrilled that more people, I think, do have that understanding of all that libraries are doing, but there are then layers underneath that. Yeah, so you mentioned what my next question was gonna be. So one of the quotes, I think this was actually from an article you wrote, is to work in a library today, one has to be a social worker, a first responder, an advocate for the underserved, and a human with very thick skin. It's it's so true. <laughs> and But the question is, you know, like you said, like why are libraries providing so much and why do we kind of see so few institutions like them like how did it all become on libraries yeah and that that's a huge question and that's something that um in chapter six of the book i really go into just the history in this country of uh you know in the 1960s 1970s we rightly discovered that mental health institutions were doing terrible things and were probably not the way to go to be helping people. And so there was this push for deinstitutionalization. And so we saw mass shutdowns of uh, mental health institutions and a a switch towards um, community care and putting like integrating people back into the community, but there was not any funding or emphasis put on preparing the community for how to help those groups. So that's Mm -hmm. how we started to see sort of mass um, groups of unhoused people who were sort of uh, released from these institutions, but back into communities that didn't um, have adequate supports um, to to meet their needs. And then of course, uh, unhoused people oftentimes have uh, mental health and addiction issues as anyone would if you don't have uh, your basic human needs Matt. So there's a yeah. lot of like higher up policy making and decisions rooted in, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s that that set us up for uh, libraries because they're free and open to the public becoming one of the only places that people have to go during the day. And I, I talked a little bit at the beginning about I had a lot of anger for a long time and I used to have this conversation with people whenever they'd find out I was a librarian and they'd do the thing which I'm sure happens to you of like oh do you read all day oh man like oh that like I've always wanted to like maybe in retirement I'll be a librarian and it's it's fine I I used to get really angry about that it it is it is offensive when you're on the front lines and being like you have no idea yes what people are doing. Yes. I wish I sat around and read all day. Yeah. That would be amazing. That would be a joy, (laughs) but that is not um, at all what the job actually is. Do you see more places being created that are similar to libraries to help this kind of underserved population, but are not libraries that are separate from where people are going to find information, um, places that are specifically to find care? Yeah, and that, that's sort of my greatest hope, right? That there become more institutions that are library adjacent or library-like. And my like biggest hope with the book is that in people reading it, um, it may spark ideas that they have, people who are working in professions outside of library work, mm-hmm. who may have ideas that um, librarians and library workers were just too close to it, that we can't... Um, come up with. You know, I believe a lot in imagination, um, in science fiction, and, and reimagining kind of what our what our world could look like. And I just think libraries are such good models of not only that um, institutions like this are possible, but that we believe in them. So that's mm-hmm. where I find like the hope and this idea of libraries can save us. Um, the notion itself, while I think it's incomplete and, and teetering into incorrect, um, it gives me hope that so many people do believe that. Yeah. Right. And it, it's such a, 
they really are completely radical where I really think, I'm like, I don't think there's anywhere left that you can go. Yeah. Where you can just exist and no one expects you to buy anything or do anything. And that is something where we need to create more of that. Like, where are people supposed to go? Where, of course, people are going to come here and it's cold outside. Yeah. I mean, we just really sweep so many communities under the rug and then they you know we push communities into one area and then a library pops up in that area which I think is so much like the library that you worked at and then you get really inundated and you're like you know I'm positive like I can do it and then it's like whoa I was not equipped to be positive through every day and and the branch where I worked was really unique in that so we're sitting here together at the central Buffalo branch and the central branch in DC is the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library and it shut down for a I think it ended up being a four-year renovation that was supposed to be two and my branch and one other were the next closest libraries to there so when it closed we sort of absorbed the population that was going to the central branch but my branch was one giant room with a computer lab. It was exceptionally small. Um, The other branch that was like equidistant was a little bit larger, but if you combine those two, they were maybe a quarter of the size of what the central branch is. So we just, I had a, I was in a really unique uh, position and branch where we were taking on uh, hundreds of people and we didn't have um, the space to accommodate them, let alone not having the expertise and the the skills that were needed. And you read that passage of like, I often when I think back to being a librarian, it's just like a box of hats, right? That you're constantly reaching into and you, you're aware of what's in the box. You know the different hats that you're able to wear and what you might be called on to do. And then there's this moment in the scramble when someone comes up to the desk or is on the floor where you are trying to figure out which hat you're reaching for in that moment. Like, am I helping someone through a psychotic episode? Um, Am I helping someone with a stab wound? And I helping someone who's having an overdose? Do they just need walking directions? Uh, It's any number of thing. And I think, um, at least for me, what became really exhausting in the profession was um, that trying to figure out, okay, which hat do I need to wear in this moment? Because every day it was like you wore all of them at some point. It's weird, too, in, like, becoming desensitized to things that I'm like, I'm probably not supposed to become desensitized to this. But you can only, you know, see someone having, I mean, like, a terrible full-fledged argument in their life. And I'm like, they're having it with nobody. And, like, I really feel for how scary that must be. But then at the same time, you're like, there's other people and there's families and there's people trying to exist at the same time. And it's like these worlds don't go together and yet they do, and they right. exist under this this one roof. Yeah, and that, that sort of, numbing's not the right word to call that, but that um, numbing down some of those feelings is, is a, an appropriate response, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't, if you were to absorb that uh, full emotion all the time, it, it takes a, a huge toll on you. And ultimately in the book, I write a lot about empathy fatigue and that, that term was coined by an oncology nurse talking about when you're exposed to trauma, whether it's yours, whether it's witnessing someone else's, Mm -hmm. uh, repeatedly, you start to shut down. We're not mentally, emotionally, even if you're trained as a social worker, social workers experience empathy fatigue too. It's, it's, you're seeing sort of the worst day of someone's life over and over and we're not, um, we're not equipped for that no matter how well-trained um, we are. And seeing the same people over and over again where, you know, in the beginning you're like, oh, I want to be so helpful to this yep. person who's going through something, but then every day of your life and that empathy fatigue really leads you to, you know, I, I didn't like feeling at times that I was like, I'm becoming a colder person. Like, you know, you have less patience or you have to really dig deep to find it even a point where I didn't work with the public face-to-face, but just over the phone, Mm -hmm. which really became like a lifeline for people who had no one to talk to, and they knew they could call this number, and they knew someone would be there that had to talk to them. But sometimes they're like, I'm I'm not your social worker. I can't just talk to you every day about the same things. And it puts you in a really hard place. Yes. Of, you know, and do you think that people 
in leadership or decision-making roles are really aware of what is being asked of librarians and the toll that it can take. I think to an extent they're all aware and oftentimes, you know, managers or administrators have at some point worked sort of boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. But by the time they make it to an admin position, they are usually at a separate building or on a separate floor, very, very removed from what's happening. And I think once you're removed from that daily um, physical, emotional exposure, um, it is it's not the same. You can hear stories about it, but when you're actually living it, uh, it's a very different thing. And so I do think there is a giant disconnect that happens and that's how uh, they are ultimately the ones making sort of the overarching decisions and how we see things happening that um, librarians are like well that's not what we needed or I wish we'd taken that money and put it towards this yeah. and I don't think it's it's not like a, a willful ignorance it's not because they don't care I think a, a piece of it is just yeah they're so detached from the sort of boots on the ground work um, that's happening in, on a daily basis. I'm really interested in like the way that libraries are even designed. So I talked about MLK closing for that renovation, and that was an opportunity for them to consider putting in a clean needle exchange, to mm-hmm. put in community showers, to put in even just storage lockers for um, on house people having to leave their belongings out on the street. You know, the branch where I worked had a one of those like bag displays like you see in an airport that's mm-hmm. like, does your bag fit? And it was, if it didn't, they couldn't bring it into the library. So they would have to leave oh, garbage wow. bags full of all of their belongings and that's, that's out on the world. street. That's their world. That's, yeah. that's everything they own. And so it's always just fascinating to me that we, um, you can sort of see the disconnect within library spaces that we put millions, sometimes billions into renovations. And it's like, well, who was this for? This was, this was with a very certain population in mind. And if we're realistic about who is patronizing libraries on a daily basis, um, it's a large majority who would need those things that I just mentioned. In yeah. addition, and I'm not meaning everything should be for them, but like we can have beautiful library spaces and wonderful collections and, and great um, technology and resources. And we can also have these other resources built in. And I think if libraries want to live up to the sort of reputation that they have, uh, we need to be thinking much more in, in that vein of how we can support everyone that uses libraries. Because it's a beautiful to talk about that they do that, but when there's not the support to back that up, and I mean support of staff, support of the like physical building space, you know, something something's going wrong there. Yeah. It's funny you say that because you know, I'll look at other libraries and the Santa Monica Library when I lived in California and it was such like, a, oh, it's so beautiful and it has an outdoor garden and there's a cafe and this is such like a quote unquote movie library, like what I want, but it doesn't meet the realities yeah. of, and it's like you, you really can have both. You just yes. have to consider, but you know, society as a whole we don't always like considering nope. the other people. I mean, it's a huge problem of sweet. And, you know, people, a lot of times, um, people that are house insecure might have mental problems. And I always think that very much in Buffalo. If you live on the streets yeah. in a city that gets yes. cold like this, like, if there are issues there. Um, and, you know, people don't want to mix with that. And it can be really scary. So yes. it's, like, tougher. You're like, I understand. Oh, I understand and completely. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. absolutely. But, like, that library you just uh, subscribed. Dis- described in Santa Monica in the back of my head I'm like what's to stop them from just adding a little wing that has storage lockers and community showers for people who need it and a big piece of that is um, there are patrons who are not going to like being around that you know quote-unquote type of person and while I have sympathy for that then I don't get I don't think those people get to do the romantic libraries are so amazing and I love how much they support people I don't think that you can say that and then be like but also I don't want that type of person there Um, they had programs on the beach that fed people for free and then the community just complained so much that they had to pass a law of like well then you if you don't have a license to make this food, then you can't give it out. Or it's like, what? And this then is, you have to then you have to create spaces for these people. I don't. Th- you, they're not going to evaporate. Yes, like, and I think that we're going to keep coming back to that that same issue in libraries until we all get more on a level playing field of understanding um, 
this is happening everywhere. If you go into any library, and so I live in California now, and like I'm thinking of Malibu, and I've been to one of the libraries there, and there are unhoused people there who got mm-hmm. themselves there to use the resources. So it's it's happening at every, I would welcome everyone to go to any library, and it doesn't matter. I think we associate this with cities a lot, but it's I live rural. It's the same situation there, suburbs. Um, you're going to walk into libraries, and you're going to find people using it for to have their basic needs met and uh, I would love if we just thought a little bit more critically about how we got to that point in this country and going back to what we were talking about earlier just how uh, other places can pick up some of that slack libraries and uh, librarians can't be doing all of this and and this is why we're sort of seeing mass burnout within the profession Mm -hmm. Um, and I got to speak to a lot of librarians as I wrote the book, and um, I sent out a survey to to 120 librarians, and um, there was at least one from every single state, including the District of Columbia. And just some of the common denominators that I that I saw in the answers were, "Do you think your MLS program prepares you to do the job?" It was a universal <laughs> no. That's every a, single person on that yes, <laughs> yeah. every single person on that survey said no. Um, are you experiencing empathy, fatigue, or burnout? Almost a universal yes. Do you feel supported by your administration? Almost a universal no. Um, so, you know, there are librarians uh, out there trying to, to tell this story, and I think where the butting of heads keeps happening is when people just want to hold on to this romantic view of libraries without looking at the reality of it, and there are yeah. people trying to talk about it. I think that's why your book is really important, because I think that a lot of people really don't know. It's not something that they thought about. I mean, and I think that's why I was so unprepared because I grew up in the, in the suburbs and that was my library and it was such a, a safe space and everyone looked exactly the same. Um, and so starting out in an urban and city libraries was like, oh, okay. Yes. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting all that. You know, there's another quote from an article where you said, I think it is deeply ingrained in American work culture and ethic that we should work and not complain, especially in professions where you are serving vulnerable and un- underserved people. That hit me the hardest of everything. And it's like really, and people are, they judge you immediately. If you're like, this is hard. They're like, oh, that poor person, you can't give them five minutes. And you're like, well, hold on. So, But do you think that this book would have been possible for you to write if you were still a working librarian? You can't see my face, listeners, <laughs> but my eyes just went as big as they go. Uh, no, there is, there is no possible way I could have written this book while I was still working in libraries um, on a number of levels. But... Um, I also didn't have the headspace or clarity, which I kind of talked about in the beginning, to even dig into this the way that I wanted to. But this is something that I don't think a lot of people realize, and I don't know what it's like here, but um, librarians are often asked to sign like non-disclosure agreements, and um, I had to recite a legally binding government oath, and there was a whole legal department in the wow. library system that I worked for who that's been like sicked on me before. Um, so no, the short answer is I couldn't have, I couldn't have written this as a librarian, both from a a legal standpoint and also just a mental, emotional standpoint. But that is why I ultimately went on to write the book. And, you know, I left library work to do my MFA in creative writing. And I had a whole other book in mind that I thought I was going to write. And when I sat down to start writing all that would come out, was um, was stories about the library because I had had articles published and I had been interviewed and I just kept feeling like 1,000 words or 1,500 words was not enough to, to tell a more complete story. Mm-hmm. And that's how it turned into, okay, I'm going to write a full book. And I really hope that it's, um, you know, ultimately the people I wrote it for the most are other librarians. It's the book that I wish I had had when I was doing my MLS. Yeah. It's really helpful. They need to put this on the syllabus. Here's <laughs> like, hoping. Um, I also like that you can tell you're in a public library right now because there's been so much like yes. chatter and banging and other things. You're like, oh, yes, I remember all of it. Do you think that you'll see any responses from library administrators or even local governments about issues that you've raised in the book? Or what would you like to see? 
I would love to see that happen. And I hope, I think if people, those people are able to make it all the way through the book, they'll see that I I'm, try to be very fair and look at it from everyone's perspective. But yes, I mean, it would be my ultimate dream that administrators take this a little bit to heart, especially uh, the chapter where I talk about the survey of librarians that I did and just the, the common responses that were coming out. Um, and, you know, I would love if we maybe saw some more uh, from a policy or politician perspective, uh, paying more attention to, to where the funding um, of libraries go. And if we care about our communities having um, pushback about, well, why did that renovation have this much money and we didn't put any of that into X, Y, Z. And I do just think it's important to the reason reckoning is in the subtitle is um, there has to be a reckoning before and a facing uh, before we can move into the next, uh, you know, version of, of libraries and whatever that, that looks like. All right, so I have to ask, you met my husband earlier, who is also a librarian, um, but do you think that our culture will always consider librarianship kind of like a womanly job? And, like, does that affect the way society treats libraries and librarians? And also... Will there ever be a movie that comes out where the librarian is not like this cardigan, cat-eye glass wearing shrew of a woman who is always nasty and is always shushing people? Like, when when does that move on? Yeah, I mean, we're so informed by, uh, by storytelling and uh, our entertainment, and so that is an interesting thing of, like, these stereotypes are just... Uh, reinforced over and over again but there is a movie I don't know if you've ever seen it called The Public that Emilio Estevez uh, directed and and starred in and it's interesting because it takes on kind of all of that there is a female librarian and then there are two male librarians and um, I actually wrote uh, an op-ed in the Los Angeles Times about going to see that movie. Yeah, it made me want to see it again because I yeah. watched like 15 minutes and I actually stopped. Once he like pulled out a wad of cash and gave it to someone in the bathroom, yes. I was like, I'm out. That is ridiculous. Yes, we that would not never just be giving happen. money. Yes, that <laughs> But if you tell me happen. it's worth going It is back. the closest I have ever seen in our media to an accurate depiction okay. of what libraries um, look like and it certainly has the Hollywood touches and pieces like that where we know that would never happen if you gave money to one patron like that you would be giving money to oh my gosh all of the patrons who found out that that happened Um, but I think uh, I got a really sweet message from Emilio he read the the op-ed and he actually does care quite a bit about public libraries and was really interested in telling a more nuanced and truthful story. But when we think about gender and library work, I mean, I do think it is absolutely seen as a as a sort of you know feminine um, profession. And if we think about the way that women are sort of treated, and we've talked a lot about empathy, I think in general, um, whether it's true or not, women are seen as um, more empathetic and caregivers and caretakers. And I don't think that it is uh, an accident that this is such a uh, female predominant profession and we are the ones who are um, being caregivers sort of oftentimes at our, to our own um, detriment yeah. and mental, emotional um, suffering. But... You know, the the percentage of uh, white men who are in administrative roles is the highest percent in library work, which gives you some more information (laughs) about kind of what what is um, happening there. But I do think, yes, absolutely, there's something tied up in um, libraries being associated more so with women that also complicates how we support them or don't support them and how we talk about them or don't talk about them. We're here. We're waiting. Men, women, people of color, you can all come apply, please. Yes. (laughs) Help us mix it up a little bit. Yes. Um, Late in the book, you write, anyone can learn to think a little bit more like a librarian when it comes not just to research and information assessment, but also empathy and community care. That's a really beautiful way to put it. Do you have tips for people? How do we even? Yeah, every person I meet, I think of them as a collection of stories, right? We all have stories that we can tell about how we became who we are. I've told some of mine today. 
And so I think right now where we seem to be at in the country is we meet someone and they say one thing or they do one thing or they look a certain way and we write them off immediately. Mm. And I think what I'm getting at there is you know what it's like to sit at a circulation desk and whoever is going to come up is going to come up. And they're going to need what they're going to need, and they're going to ask what they're going to ask. And whether you like it isn't really uh, the most important piece there. So I certainly, I'm sure you can relate, got questions at the circulation desk that I didn't, you know, enjoy or like. Um, But it was my job to to have some patience and to work with them for an answer. And um, I think that that's something that we can do better at. And also just understanding, being open um, to who people are and that we are all, yeah, a collection of stories and things that have happened to us and um, treating treating people with as much um, empathy and, and kindness and openness as possible uh, as we as we meet them and interact with them. Yeah. You know, that's something that I had to learn in the work that I'm probably most grateful for was how to interact with people from all walks of life to the to the best of my ability yeah that's an excellent way to to put it i think i created my own kind of slogan where i was just like we find facts and facts find truth and that's what i just have to focus on is not what people believe or what they're asking or things that you know and i get really offended by these book bans and things that are going on of like librarians are trying to radicalize and it's like we are finding the truth and we're parts of society that exist that is like the ultimate goal i just want people to find it trained in that yes you know so we're not just doing that because it sounds fun uh, or we feel good about it you know we're professionally trained to do exactly well we're not just sitting around reading yes we're also doing (laughs) all i read i read one chapter of one book i think the entire time uh, i worked in public libraries and i remember the book because it was like that memorable (laughs) it's really funny because you know you get sent a lot of like pre-published books where i'm always like why are you sending me do you think i'm gonna read this and then be like i think this was good i think i'll buy it yes (laughs) they do think you're gonna read it and have that time and you just don't um, so I'm, we're gonna we're running out of time. I'm gonna have to wrap up. I want to ask you a couple questions about writing, but did you want to share another excerpt from the book? Yeah, I think this is actually from the last chapter, and I don't think it's a it's a spoiler alert. But, okay. uh, ultimately, uh, the book lands on on hope, um, and I think that this is maybe just a fitting way to to sort of close out with me reading. Um, this piece for this part of our conversation. So, every question I have asked and every idea I have posited in these pages has been included with a hope that it might send others down their own paths of research and reckoning, of change. Part of our collective truth, one that has been recorded, housed, and protected for centuries in libraries and by librarians, is that we are all connected to each other. Perhaps the most important part of our collective work now is remembering that. Remembering our inherent relationship to each other, to our planet, and a sense of human duty to both. It requires research and thinking, curiosity and openness. It requires a pause. May libraries shine their light as unending reminders of who we have been and who we might be. May their future be better still than I can imagine. The last words of the book. I think this book is the book I pretended that I was going to write someday, but I definitely could not have done it (laughs) that eloquently. It's really beautiful. You're a very talented writer. Thank you. Um, I do want to ask a little bit about writing. Like, What sort of literary pilgrimage did you go on writing this book? Yeah, so really interestingly, my editor for this book told me not to read while I was writing. Oh. And I was like, she's the professional, she knows what she's doing, so I am not going to read. And then that was a mistake. Uh, (laughs) And I ended up, uh, in the book, every single chapter opens with an epigraph from a book that I was reading at some point during writing. And especially for a book about libraries, I was like, no, there have to be there have to be sort of other other voices in here. But uh, the writing process in general was 
a lot. Um, being given a deadline was very helpful. I had a year to write this, and probably six months of that time was spent researching and collecting information and making a mess of papers on my floor okay. before it ever <laughs> turned into uh, the the actual opening a Word document and, and writing. I... I fiddle with a fiction book that I'm trying to write and I'm just really impressed by people that make it all the way through because I find it it's really difficult the the motivation you know I get a little frustrated and then I'm like or I could do this other thing that brings Mm -hmm. me joy and then I don't feel frustrated and it's really hard to kind of push yourself so yeah I teach creative writing and um that is that is the biggest issue that all writers I think have is like how do you how do you get yourself to sit down and and meet yourself at the desk and and do what needs to be done and so that six months I mentioned of I just kind of call it gathering um I had to make peace with that as also writing I think we have this idea in our head of like writing is only when you have the word doc and you are like pounding words onto a keyboard. And it was really helpful to me to just make peace with um, jotting down a quote in a notebook or making like a random iPhone note or seeing a tweet that resonated and screenshotting it and sharing it to a folder that all of that also falls under writing. I think when you can switch your brain a little bit to that, like this is writing. Um, it takes some of the pressure off yourself of like, oh, I didn't get any words down okay. today. And I'm like, but you're thinking about it. You have and an I'm, online course? Where am I signing up? Yeah, yeah, this? yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. If you go to my website, I teach periodically. I used to teach at UC Riverside where I did my my MFA through a, a fellowship with them. And I've taught a few different places. But no, I mean, that's that's like the thing that writers struggle with is how do we get ourselves to sit down? And yeah, I got lots of techniques and things like that that I teach. What does literary success look like to you? Yeah, and that's actually been a question that I've had to kind of ask and answer in the in the last week since the, the book came out a week ago yesterday. And uh, I thought it might be numbers. And I'm really lucky that the numbers have done well so far. Um, so I've met my goal there. But it's more so the, the response and um, being able to hear from librarians has meant the most to me. Just the, mm-hmm. and I've started to get lots of messages and notes that the book resonated. And to me, I think that's the ultimate feeling of success with this is that uh, I made someone feel seen and heard and understood. And perhaps I got to be a little bit of a mouthpiece mm-hmm. um, for them. And so. it's something I can share with people in my life who don't understand. Yeah. Where it's like, I don't have, you know, through my 20s and 30s, it, it was like party jokes. I'm like, oh, oh this always. thing happened. Yeah. And people are like, that didn't happen. And I'm like, yes, that it 100% did. 100% happened. Yes, yes. Um, I got a pickup line at the desk, the guy being really smooth and leaning over and giving me eyes. And then his final bit was like, you know... <laughs> I wasn't always homeless. And I was like, oh, that's... That really got me. That's a line. Here I come, you yeah. know? So it's great for that. I think, my, like, my dad's going to really enjoy it and my yeah. family to be like, this is a thing that, that is going on. It's not easy to... It wasn't easy to write. It's not easy to talk about a lot of this stuff. But um, I appreciate you pointing out, and this was my feeling, is there was there is no book out there. There are lots of books about libraries mm-hmm. uh, that maybe touch on things that happen, like there's Susan Orlean's library book, which I think does a terrible job of talking about yeah. public libraries as they are today. Um, but this this is the only book that I feel like what you just said, that you can give it to a friend or family member who like has an idea of what you're saying about how work is really tough, but um, doesn't fully get it. Because deep inside, they're like, oh, at the library. Yeah, we still have that. Yeah, that view of it of like, oh, it can't possibly be that bad. Or like maybe one weird thing happens a day. And it's like, no, that's not right. So what's next for you? Uh, I'm working on a second book, and I I have a writing residency up in Northern California that I got for six weeks where I'm going to really kind of hunker down and work on that. And that is a very – so I'm a stylistic prose writer at heart. Mm -hmm. This overdue is very much narrative nonfiction. Um, This is much more experimental stylistic prose, and it's about the idea of home with a capital H. So when we ask that question of where's home – uh, all the different um, answers that that come up with people around that. So you know, one answer for me might be that Buffalo is home because that was where I was born and raised. But I haven't lived here in 
over 10 years. So it's in its early stages. I'm in the gathering part that I talked about. Okay. Um, but hopefully that will that will be the next project and next thing that you see from me other than probably some essays in there. That's very fascinating. It was definitely something I think I thought about and struggled with a lot when I was younger of the idea of like, what is home? Yep. Which places mm-hmm. am I going to feel something? Is something going to like light up and I'll yeah. know? And I think it's spe- like specifically kind of a difficult question for women who whose bodies uh, create uh, sure. life and can be a home. And um, I'm especially interested and in, I've just been pretty nomadic in my life and single for long stretches and what home looks like for me versus someone who, you know, maybe hasn't ever left their hometown and is with their high school sweetheart and just all the different ways that we think about home. I'm heading to Joshua Tree in May, so I'm going to lurk your home then. Oh, yeah, you're coming okay. and we're hanging out. I'm excited. I love it. Oh, <laughs> I yeah, need, Joshua Tree is such a special energy. place. Yeah, if there's an opposite uh, to Buffalo, the, the desert is, is it. That sounds great. <laughs> well, because we are a library podcast, I can never let people go without asking, what is your favorite underappreciated novel? Oh, oh interesting. I know it's tough. People are always like, how did you not warn me? I cannot, I need time to think about this. I mean, like I have, I can tell you what my favorite book is that I don't know that a lot of people have heard of, but um, it's 300 Arguments by Sarah Manguso. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly what the title says. It's sort of 300 arguments, um, sort of like aphorisms that she has written. And it is, uh, I have books that I call like my Bible books and that they like sit on my bedside table like a Bible and I return to them all the time and they they give me guidance. And um, that book has been one that uh, has seen me through a lot. One of the epigraphs in the book is is from that. Okay, my... I've never even heard of it. Yeah, so I think within the world who, there are people, there are like Sarah Manguso fangirls for sure <laughs> uh, and boys and they thems, um, but yeah, Sarah, uh, that book is one of my favorites, and not a lot of people have heard of it. Well, that's great. I <laughs> This was so fun. Why does it have to end? It doesn't have to. We're going to go have lunch let's after just, this. Let's just loop it. <laughs> yeah. It's a good 24-hour stream of this. But it really, it means a lot to me. It means a lot to the library to have you come in. Um, I'm just really happy for your success. And just thank you for, you know, putting the time and the effort into creating this I think people are always like oh sometimes like you're smart or you're good at it and I'm like yes like you are but that's hard work and that's something that I really appreciate is taking the time to do it and I know do you have an event uh, coming up tomorrow that I'll see I was going to say we could plug it but this won't air till Monday (laughs) so that won't work (laughs) Um, but like I said I'm looking forward to that and then I'm going to get my copy of the book and then I'm going to dig in yeah, thank you so much, and thank you for having me. And it means a lot, obviously, to be in my hometown in a library that I definitely came and visited as a kid many, many times. Um, it means a lot to me to get to talk to any librarian in any library, but this one's particularly uh, close to my heart. So I really appreciate it. We're happy to, to have you home and mm-hmm. visiting. All right, Yay. thank you so much, and hopefully we'll talk again in the future. Thanks, Michelle.